0: Met with sustainable investing experts from SASPI to Bloomberg to Ceres and to Cornerstone Capital discussing the most debated questions in your industry managing ESG data gaps, standardizing sustainability reporting, and translating ESG into financial value for the company. We have Mindy Luber, CEO and President of Series, with us today. Thank you so much for joining us, Mindy. Great to be here. So we're just going to start off into some key themes that we're talking about
1: at Greenfin. How do investors manage data gaps? Well, first of all, investors are not looking for all the data in the world. They are looking for material financial data. Um, when they don't have it, they do the analysis and figure out how to plug the gaps. They may put in their own numbers or look elsewhere. Um, But the more companies put into the marketplace, the more they disclose their data, the better they're going to be analyzed and reviewed by their investors. So
0: we're talking about KPIs and which KPIs are material. I understand that if you're in a different industry, KPIs in one industry might look different than KPIs in another industry.
1: Is that the case? And is there a level of consistency that we can bring around KPIs? Well, not perfectly. It is, as you say, different by industry sectors. Think about it. What are the risk issues for an insurance company? And the risk issues for an insurance company, which actually add up to tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars a year these days, is very different than the risk issues for an apparel company. But that doesn't mean they're not material for both sectors. If I were The Gap or Levi Strauss or an apparel company, I would be worried about my cotton crop. Is my cotton crop in an area where drought or storms are going to kill the crop, which has happened consistently over the last five or six years, and more so than before. That's their KPIs. You know, what are the risks and the opportunities they're looking at? What kind of goals and practices they need to put in place? If you're a bank and you're financing uh, coal-fired power plants, that's a different set of risks. So I would argue the risks, be it reputational risks or physical risks or legal risks are very, very different. Think about if you're in the agricultural sector. I mean, two years ago, the drought in California, half of the farms could not be farmed. And that meant workers were laid off. It meant prices of produce went up. It meant truckers lost their job. It meant certain foods weren't available at the supermarkets. And so if you're in agriculture, you've got to be looking at different risks and different KPIs for what you want to accomplish. Similar issues, very different risks and opportunities depending on your sector. Wow. So we're talking about the various risks,
0: legal risk, reputational risk, climate risk. Should those risks also guide whether the emphasis should be on the E in the ESG, the S or the governance? Should firms look at those in a holistic way and balance all three of those, environmental, social, and governance? Or should that be in some way informed by the industry and the risks that you just spoke about?
1: You know, sometimes I think we in the sustainability field overcomplicate. What I said to the United States Congress a few months ago, and I would say anywhere else. ESG risks are just risks. If something is a financial risk to a sector, or a major risk to a sector, from my perspective, whether it's E, S, G, or just a straight financial risk, shouldn't matter. If it is a risk, it should be integrated. If it's an opportunity, it should be integrated. And so ESG risks, well, why are trade risks more important than ESG risks or tax risks or inflation risks. Let's just put one category of risks out there, and it may be an environmental risk or a social risk or a trade risk or a new pandemic risk with new diseases and flus coming on the scene. Um, they are real financial risks that have to be taken into account as data points as important measurement for investors and for companies. And we need to, in some ways, stop putting them in silos, but just look at them for what they are, which are financial risks. Mm. So how
0: do you translate ESG performance into financial value?
1: Sure. Uh, Look, if you're Walmart or Target or some of the larger companies that have changed their transportation systems, how they transport Um, their product, have changed their refrigeration systems, have changed their supply chain demands. Um, All of those things, you know, ESG is saving money in many, many instances. And companies ought to show that. If, in fact, they're saving money, if FedEx is saving money, because they no longer make left turns, which they did to save energy. And thus they're saving money. Those things need to be shown. They need to be disclosed, they need to be articulated, and they need part of the need to be part of the discussion with investors. Many of the sustainability changes that we're looking for do generate savings. If they do, let's show it.
0: So we talked a bit about timely topics that institutional investors should be aware of. What do you think is going on, the most important thing going on in the market right now that's timely and relevant? And how should institutional investors really um, hone in on that important
1: topic? Sure. So let's take climate risk as a perfect example. We just all came from, you know, or many people from the World Economic Forum, Uh, Some of the largest investors are talking about climate risk, finally, after a decade um, of pushing that ball up the hill. Uh, But without question, when you face the kind of risk that climate change brings to us, every single sector of our economy is impacted. If you're a bank, what you're financing is impacted. If you're an insurance company, if you're a mortgage company, if you're an agricultural company, I could go on and on. There's almost no sector that's not impacted. And so we've got to look at that risk and figure out how to avoid it. If you're a manufacturer and your manufacturing systems require water and you end up in a city where there's not enough water to drive your manufacturing systems, that is a catastrophe for your business. So we've got to look at things like climate risk. And here's what we're seeing investors doing. We work with 390 global investors, largely institutional investors. They're assets assets total $40 trillion. That's with a T. They have said climate risk is the largest financial risk that they're facing. They have looked at the 100 largest emitters of greenhouse gases, which make up our global warming problem. And they have said, we are going to move those companies to set ambitious goals and change their practices related to climate change. Change how they power their firms change how they disclose it change what they do day to day and you know what companies are moving because their largest owners 390 plus investors have said we want you to bring your greenhouse gas emissions down to most of their portfolio companies have said we want you to be transparent and we want your boards involved in this issue because of the size of the risk so institutional investors matter of course they're the largest owners of companies, and they are coming together and making a difference around climate change, around diversity on corporate boards in ways that I've never seen before. Wow. And what bodies like SEC, what bodies are um, really having an
0: impact and what's going on with the impact that they're having?
1: Well, the SEC has a set of guidance on the books that says companies need to disclose the material financial issues related to climate risk and water risk. The reality is most companies are not doing it, and the SEC is presently not enforcing against that guidance. So we've got a rule. It's not being complied with. You know, politics getting in the way, who knows? Let's stay out of politics for the moment. But the SEC's job is to make sure that investors have the information they need to make smart decisions. Do they want to invest in company A or B, or do they not? And they cannot make smart decisions without adequate risk information. So it really is the SEC's job to make sure there's adequate risk information. At the moment, they're not enforcing their guidance that calls for it. Uh, We need to see that as a change. The SEC um, today is expecting final day of comments on whether or not they should limit what shareholders could ask companies for in their shareholder resolutions or their proxy statements. I think that is an extremely damaging rule that the SEC is looking forward to putting into place. Uh, I hope the commentary that comes into them in formal comments to their rule suggests that they ought to back off. Right now they're saying if you want to file a shareholder resolution, you need to be a large investor. The threshold for how much assets you need is just going up. And look, it is important to have institutional investors weighing in, but it's also important for citizens. If they have an issue and they're small investors, their voice needs to be heard as well. On that note,
0: Minnie, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Great. Thank you.
0: Our next guest is Katie Schmitz Hewlett, Director of Investor Outreach at Sustainability Accounting Standards Board. Thank you so much for joining us, Katie. Thanks for having me. So let's just jump right into it. Data gaps.
2: How can we manage data gaps and where do they exist? Well, some would argue that there aren't data gaps, but there's a more pervasive problem with data quality. Um, There's a lot of ESG information out there in the market, but it lacks comparability. Much of it is binary. So simply yes, no answers to questions like, do you have a policy in place on labor conditions in your supply chain? Which... Five years ago may have been the question to ask, but today the more relevant question is how are you managing those issues? So moving from the yes-no answers to more fulsome disclosure, that's investment grade and decision useful for investors. So when do we see that movement taking place? Has that shift happened already? I think it's happening. I mean, the whole reason for SASB's raison d'etre is to provide a framework through which companies can translate the work they've been doing for decades on sustainability, in many cases, into a language that is understood and spoken by investors, which we've been talking a lot about over the last two days here at the Green Fin Summit. Um, so I would say it's early days. And if you look at, uh, from an historical perspective, the transition from you know the days before international gap and U.S. gap, it took us a long time to get to those generally accepted accounting principles. And likewise, we are in a fairly early stage of the evolution of this whole reporting space around sustainability and investor understanding of the uh, the importance of good disclosure on sustainability issues. So, Um, I would submit to you that with the codification of SASB standards in November of 2018, that was a a watershed moment in this movement where we now have standards in place for 77 industries uh, that really focus in on the intersection of sustainability issues that a lot of people have been talking about for a very long while. But those issues for which we have evidence of the likelihood that those things can affect the financial condition or operating performance of companies in a given industry. So, I'd say we're in very early days of that standardization, but we're, um, we've we been very, very pleased to see the uptake of SASB standards, both by investors, even before the standards were codified, as sort of a framework for thinking about these issues, as well as after the standards were codified by companies, over 100 companies today, that are using SASB in a uh, a standardized way to communicate with their investors about their performance on sustainability. So when we look at those standards, who are the primary drivers? So who will be the who are the
0: early adopters and who can we see in the near term over the next year or eighteen months
2: being the driving force behind those standards? Well, I would, um in one word, say investors. If I use two words, I would say institutional investors, although there is a rising tide of retail investors who are also seeking better information about how companies are performing on these issues. And that really stems from um, sort of, an again, an evolution in this whole space around things that we intuitively understood but didn't have a lot of um, evidence to support the fact that they should be included in investment decisions. And today, where we have a, a growing body of evidence that shows companies that better manage these issues outperform their peers who don't and also, you know, have better impacts on the world. So, investors are really have sort of come along in this evolutionary process. Some would say that they've been lagging, they're sort of bringing up the rear, but now that they are leaning in on this issue, I think they are a key driver in the adoption of standardized disclosure to investors on these issues. So let's look at the flip side. Who are
0: the entities or the people or the industries who do not see value in standardization or who in some way attempt to um, stop your efforts?
2: I don't think that there's anyone who's trying to stop our efforts. I do think that if I had to point a finger at an enemy. It is confusion in the market, and sort of a mythology that has built up around how hard this all is, and we can't do more. Um, and um, so, there's, there's definitely. Fatigue. There's reporting fatigue, there's survey fatigue, and the perception that this is yet another thing that we must do instead of saying, no, this is actually kind of a subset. This is a slice of what you're already thinking about, reporting about, likely if you're a large cap company in particular. And a a way of translating this again into something that investors can fold into their investment decision-making process. So it's a lot of, um, overcoming perceptions in the market, I would say, um, and helping people understand this rich ecosystem of standards, tools, and frameworks that are available for companies now to use, to communicate to different audiences. And I think that's a very important distinction to make that, um, you you have to translate yourself when you go into a different market. You have to translate yourself for different audiences. And and I think there has been this desire for there to be one thing, to give us just one thing that we can do that satisfies everyone. And that has proven to be very challenging and, and thus has also resulted in there being a lot of noise in the system, which is what investors are now saying. No, we, we, we need clarity. We need comparable, consistent, reliable data. And just please translate your work us. When do we see the standardization and the standardiz-
0: standardization, get that out, when do we see that happening? Do we see that being something that's going to be very near
2: term, full adoption? What does that look like? And then when do we see it happening? Well, those are a couple of questions nested together. So standardization is upon us. So SASB standards are available for use to communicate uh, your performance to investors. GRI has standards for the communication of impact and Companies' impacts on the world, um, and also very relevant to the SDGs, those two things, among other frameworks like TCFD, are are the the very robust pieces of this ecosystem that I referred to previously. There's also the uh, IIRC, the International Integrated Reporting Council, that have given us really solid principles-based frameworks through which. Um, We've asked companies to communicate their long-term value proposition propositions. So the standards and tools are available and out there. The uptake of those standards and tools is is patchy. Um and I think we see in, in terms of what the drivers of uh adoption will be, that is a mixture of a variety of different things. Investor interest, most certainly. Um There is tremendous policy and regulatory activity happening outside the United States that we should all be keenly aware of, which we certainly are aware of. And um, I think it's very important um, to recognize that Investors operate in global capital markets, and so they are thinking globally about these issues. And so they, as investors, are seeking for there to be a standard through which companies communicate to them about their performance on these things, and they have gravitated towards SASB as that standard. How this fits into this developing ecosystem and this regulatory development, uh, these regulatory developments that we see in other markets, I think that all um, say that they are going to be... Uh, built upon existing frameworks and standards, I think we can um, expect to see that landscape move pretty quickly outside the United States. And we're certainly keeping a close eye on that. So if we look at
0: standards, as well as overall performance, so what's being measured, how can a
2: company translate that into financial value? Well, I think I'll take, I'll, I'll take the flip side of that, of that question. And, and, somewhat turn it on its head to say, if if something is in a SASB standard, it's because we tie that particular issue and the related metrics to the likelihood of it having an impact on financial performance, financial condition or operating performance. So that's one of the reasons that investors are so interested in a SASB lens on information, because it takes a broad you know, swirling array of topics and issues that are always evolving. And there's always a new thing on the horizon and says, okay, what of those things are likely to affect a company's performance in this industry that can affect their performance, my portfolio, um, you know, reputational risk and so on and so forth. So if it's in a SASB standard, we, if you can, you can follow the breadcrumbs back to our research and the standards development process, that is very rigorous and, um, well-defined, to tie everything back to key financial performance drivers um, that can affect the balance sheet income statement you know, that, of a company in a given industry. So that is why it's such an important tool for management, for boards of directors, for people who are trying to get their heads around this, if, if a company hasn't started the sustainability reporting journey, or even thinking about these things, to take a look at the things that are in SASB standards, because it's really a floor of the things that you would want to know about and want to have well in hand um, in order to ensure that you are going to be there for the long run. I think somebody, uh, many people of the last couple of months have been using a phrase that I like a lot. It's about 21st century risk management. It's about, being there for the long run. And that's really what this is about.
0: Mm. 21st century risk management, adoption, as well as implementation, the importance of standardization. Thank you so much for joining us, Katie. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Our next guest is Erica Karp, founder and CEO of Cornerstone Capital. CEO of Cornerstone Capital, there is a lot of history that goes into the making of this company, partnerships, et cetera. Could you share with us a bit about what you
3: do and then the partnerships that you have? Right. Uh, Well, so Cornerstone Capital Group fundamentally is an impact investment advisor. Okay. So that's what we do. We serve uh, foundations, endowments, families, individuals who want to align their money and their values. All right. So that's what we do in basic terms. Our heritage uh, is as a research organization, an investment research organization. And we use our thematic uh, sustainable research or sustainable thematic research uh, to inform our manager due diligence. So we diligence hundreds and hundreds of managers that helps us pick the best investments for our clients. And basically, where are we now? Where do you think We will be,
0: say, at the end of 2020. What really is going to impact where things go in
3: terms of that due diligence piece? Well, this is actually a huge issue right now. And uh, arguably, it's one of the issues that the SEC is looking particularly carefully at. One of the reasons is because the, the kind of ESG analysis space, or the sustainable investment space, is actually starting to have a huge number of new product launches. And the quality of those launches of those fund managers is all over the map because the language is problematic, uh, the data is problematic, and most importantly, the expertise is problematic. There are those of us who have been doing this for decades and those who frankly think, ooh, this is a marketing opportunity, let me in. So making those differentiations um, is critically important right now. Speaking of risk adjusted returns, we talked a bit about
0: translating and I'm going to be mindful of my usage of ESG now translating ESG performance are those metrics that you get to those performance areas into financial values. What KPIs should institutional investors be aware of?
3: Well, again, as long as we're talking about risk-adjusted returns, um, first of all, there's no black-and-white answer to this. What is black-and-white is that you have to have an understanding, based on the industry in which a company operates, you have to have an understanding of the most important areas, the material areas um, of, uh, of impact. Right? And so, for instance, if you are in um, uh, the restaurant or hotel industry, you really need to understand the risk associated uh, with human trafficking or sexual and gender-based violence, right? If you are in um, the shipping industry, you really have to have an understanding of you know safety issues and carbon emissions. If you are in the um, uh, beverage industry, or the semiconductor industry, right? You really have to have an understanding of what's going on with access to water because of the nature of what you're doing. So the bottom line is it depends on what you need to look at. And many, many companies at the board level have had discussions around, you know, a materiality matrix in terms of what matters to them. So materiality sounds like it can be pretty
0: static, but how the metrics around that materiality, the fundamental metrics, do we expect that to change the standards around materiality? What will standards look
3: like in, say, the next year? Will standards ever be standardized? I, you must know that I love that question as a founding board member of the SASB. So the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, that's why it was created. And that's why it was so com- compelling to me from the start, because we are talking about by sector um, materiality. The answer is we've, we've made wonderful strides in terms of starting to um, express the disclosures, the standards for disclosure. That said, standards take an enormous amount of time. Standards, though, are critical to innovation. Um, So I think SASB has made great progress. We need to see corporate adoption. Till we get that standardization, this is very complex because very often industries have their own standards, and now we have the centralized standards, and of course we have the GRI. So there's a lot of kind of schemes coming up, and I think we're going to start to see, you know, a consolidation. But this takes time because of the complexity. How much time? Is this something that we're thinking about for <laughs> 2021? Do we see it 2022? What do you What do you think uh, we're Unfortunately, there? I think we're thinking more 2025, 2030. Somebody asked me this same question 10 years ago. And it was like, yeah, we're going to get these standards set up. I'm like, no, no. I started my career like 30 years ago in the technology industry. Standards take time. That doesn't mean we don't do anything now, all right? This whole, this whole field, this whole discipline of sustainability is constantly evolving. And the key is that we want to understand, one, what the key risks and opportunities are uh, for corporations. Two, what is... what what should be disclosed so we can get standardization and projections and accountability and auditability and all that. But also, number three, and this is more qualitative, we want to understand what a company stands for. What are their values? What are they going to hold people accountable for? What are they going to audit? And I have to tell you that if there were a single thing that I wanted to know around kind of corporate governance and corporate sustainability... I want to know how consistent is this company in what it says it's going to do and what it actually does. Because you can tell me as much data as you want, but if there are obvious inconsistencies, it's going to blow everything away um, in terms of credibility and in terms of trust. And the one thing we really need to reestablish in the world of institutional um, structures, we need to reestablish trust. Transparency is a big part of that. Mm. Transparency and trust, critical in
0: capitalism, critical in business, and critical in the functioning of our society. Thank you so much, Erica, for joining us.
3: It's my pleasure.
0: Finally, we will hear from Emily Chasen, Sustainable Finance Editor at Bloomberg Green, talking about making the data-driven ESG investing decisions and the role of AI. Emily, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me.
4: Socially conscious investors, what do they want now versus a year ago? So I've been covering this space for about four years at Bloomberg, and um, we've just launched Bloomberg Green, and we're really focusing on ESG investors. And what we're seeing is that they want companies to move to a place of action from a place of disclosure. So the market for a long time has sort of rewarded companies for being transparent in this space and you know, saying what their carbon footprint is um, or what their diversity is. But now they want to see more action. They want to see pathways. They want to see that you're aligned to 1.5 degrees. You're setting science-based targets. You're using industry standards. Um, they really want that alignment so that they can just move forward at a faster pace.
0: So how can these firms who, these people who really want to see action take place, How can firms get past the perception that ESG is a PR
4: exercise? Yeah, well, ESG is really about risk fundamentally. Um, This is what we talked about investors, too, is we always see them saying, how can we understand the risks that are out there beyond what's in the financial statements. And that's really what ESG is. So ESG did obviously start that um, a lot of companies, the sustainability stories started in marketing. So there is sort of a history there and maybe some people are skeptical about it. But recently I did a story um, interviewing a quant investor and he said, you know, when companies say, too much PR and they're too fluffy. That's not really a good sustainable investment. Maybe they're trying to hide something. He he likes the companies that are really true about the problems they're facing and the hurricanes and the floods and he'll give them extra points. So. So the
0: topic of quant investors and your research and conversations there, how can quant analysts help an investor choosing from say thousands of stocks or evaluate small companies or even emerging market equities?
4: Well, one of the interesting things about ESG is there's still only ESG information about on about 4,000, 3,000 companies. Um, so you don't have the whole universe of companies that have this information. So quant investors that we've talked to are really looking at putting um, – this information into their models and um, estimating and filling in the gaps and the holes in the information and creating um, a system that gives them a better input. So a good example is carbon taxes. Um, We talked to this investor at Acadian Asset Management, and they saw that in places where there is a carbon tax, there is a price on carbon that the market is incorporating into those companies. But... When you go a little further out and um, you see companies where there's no tax in that region, the market was still incorporating it. So they said these stocks look artificially cheap and they wanted to incorporate a carbon price throughout the whole portfolio. And so they just estimated what it would be. Wow. Okay. And in terms of
0: basing um, sustainability on AI versus human touch, what are the benefits of basing one's sustainability analysis on artificial
4: intelligence versus? human elements. So ESG investing really started as um, an actively managed portfolio, right? And now there's passive and then AI is even sort of another form of passive. Um, It just really depends on what you want. You know, maybe you think that humans can understand this information better and understand these risks. They're really broad risks. The data is very unstructured. Maybe you think a machine can do it better. Um, And that's just a, a difference of opinion, I guess.
0: Great. Emily Chasen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. We've spoken with some of the key leaders in the ESG space, and clearly data and standardization of ESG reporting remain the central issues in the industry. What did you think about the podcast? Would you like to share your thoughts on the topic? Suggest themes for upcoming episodes or even have your story featured on the podcast reach out to me using the email in the episode description or post on social media using hashtag RS podcast. Stay tuned. We invite you to subscribe to the Refinitive Sustainability Perspectives podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your content. What did you think about the podcast? Leave us a review on iTunes or follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for updates on our show. Thank you for joining. See you next time.